teaching for 50 years. This is my 50th year. Only once in 50 years, that's 150 trimesters, only once have I taught an early morning class. <laughs> I've taken a lot of our position. How Dan got me to do this at 7.30 in the morning is mind-boggling, absolutely mind-boggling. It's not going to happen again, that I'll tell you. I'm barely conscious. No, that's not true. So I thank you all for coming. I tell the students on the first day of every class, you cannot explain the present by the present. Everything has a history. So you have to forgive a professor of history talking to you about, we will get to where you want to go, I promise you. But we have to talk about a history of anti-Semitism. Very, very succinctly, that which is our strength has often caused us a great deal of difficulty. We have been able to be a cohesive people because of some of our distinctive religious characteristics. We are different. I'm not a psychologist, I'm not a psychiatrist, but I can tell you historically people abhor those who are different. For those of you that took a good course in classical history, in the Greco-Roman period, it is the conflict, as far as we are concerned, the conflict between Athens and Jerusalem. That is very simply and very succinctly. The Greek will come to us and ask us, why? Why do you not eat pork? The Greek arrives at truth through logic, and the Jewish answer is, this is Torah Misinai. God said it, and the Greek looks at us as if we're crazy. The Greek asks us, why do you rest on your seventh day? Why is this a Sabbath? Is it because you're infirm? Is it because you do not have the strength? Is it because you're lazy? And again, the answer is, this is Torah Misinai. God told us to do this. The Greek looks at us again and again. Now, don't misconstrue what I am saying to you. There's a great deal of support and sympathy for Jews in the Greco-Roman world. Jewish ethics, the incorporality of our God, we don't worship idols, these things have enormous appeal too. But the fact that we are different will hurt us. It keeps us together. And for example, even if you have the most cursory knowledge of Greek or Roman history, or certainly Greek culture, you know that the Greeks didn't worship the body, but they made a good deal out of the beauty of the body. And the Greek asks us, why do you circumcise your males? Why are you mutilating the body? And the answer is, this is Torah Misinai. This is the word of God. And the Greek again looks at us as if we are crazy. In the Christian period, then it's a different story. To really cut to the chase very, very quickly, it is, of course, what one Holocaust survivor who lost his family, that is Dr. Isaacs, a physician, who will write a book called The Basic Teachings of Contempt. That is the Catholic Church early on will teach some ideas about the Jews that again will haunt us down really right to the present, present and I think long into the future. Teaching number one, Judaism at the time of Jesus was spiritually bankrupt. The Jews worshiped the letter of the law, but not the spirit of the law. The story in the New Testament that makes that clear is Jesus chasing the money changers out of the temple. What's the point of the story? Look at the Jews turning a buck. Turning a buck right near the Holy of Holies. In reality, there has to be, there has to be money changes in the vicinity of the temple because Jews from all over the diaspora are coming. They're exchanging their currency. 
into the currency of Judea. They are buying animals to sacrifice at the temple. But perception is reality. The most important of the teachings of contempt is that we are guilty of the greatest crime that has ever been perpetrated on the planet. Homicide is murder, a terrible crime. Parasite, the killing of a parent, is worse. Regicide is worse. Regicide, the killing of a king, is worse than that. We are, according to the book of Matthew and the Gospel of John, we are guilty of the greatest crime that has ever been perpetrated in the history of the world. We killed God's only son. Again, this is not the time to talk about this. For most historians, Christian as well as Jewish, deny this. And in Vatican II, the church simply repudiated this idea. But for 1,900 years, for 1,900 years, Christians of all denominations will be told that we are a people of Christ killers. And finally, the idea of supersessionism. That is, that God has abandoned this idea of the chosen people, or to put it another way, there is a new chosen people. The new chosen people are those who accept Jesus. The covenants between God and the Jewish people are abrogated because the, God, because the Jews killed God's only son. So, when all is said and done, and this is the important point, these are ideas that will penetrate, that will permeate Western civilization right down to the present. And as the night follows the day, what of course is going to happen is the development of a folklore. When a people is held in contempt for an extended period of time, all folklorish, a number of folklorish ideas begin to appear. The two that are most dramatic, the ones that you are familiar with, are of course ritual murder, that and blood libel, the idea that the Jews kill Christian boys and girls at the time of Passover, use the blood for the baking of the unleavened bread, the matzah. It is a nonsensical charge. Thousands of Jews will die as a consequence of this. The other folklorish idea is what is called host desecration. When a Catholic priest says the prayer over the wafer, this is not symbolic. When he says the prayer over the wafer, the wafer becomes the body of Christ. And when he says the prayer over the wine, the wine becomes the body of Christ. This is what is known as transubstantiation. And in the medieval period, a number of priests will testify that they saw Jews sneak into a Catholic church at night, take out consecrated wafers, and stab them. That is, the Jews were crucifying Jesus once again. And many a priest would say he saw blood coming out of the wafer. Jesus was suffering again at the hands of the Jews. The coming of enlightenment is, not, is going to change things, of course. The enlightenment of late 17th and 18th centuries leading to the French Revolution, leading on September 27th of September 91, to the Jews being emancipated in France. This is the first continental country to emancipate its Jews. It will lead to tremendous Jewish success. We are like a coiled spring. The Jews will rise in virtually every field. Again, by the end of the 19th century, by 1900, let me give you these figures, out of every 33, uh, excuse me, out of every 100,000 uh, Protestants in Prussia, 58 were in the universities. Out of every 100,000 Catholics, 33. Out of every 100,000 Jews, 518. The Jews will be about 10% of the population of the city of Vienna. One-third of all students at the University of Vienna will be men and women of Jewish extraction. We rise. Emancipation makes us something that we were not before. We are now competition, and we are now very, very effective competition. So emancipation serves us well. All those Nobel Prizes, 
all those achievements, but again, the flip side of that coin is going to be that people will envy us, we are competitors, and that's going to present a problem. In addition to that, as we all know, there are ideas that are found within the realm of science that spin off into the popular consciousness, and they have dramatic impact. The best example of this, I won't spin this out, of course, is Newtonian physics, with its ideas of immutable natural laws that permeate our physical universe. By the end of the 17th century and the early 18th century, there were people who will say, if there are natural laws that permeate our physical universe, there must be natural laws that can be discovered through the light of reason that govern our economic and political and social universes as well. That's a good idea, and that will eventually lead, again, to the Enlightenment and to Jewish emancipation. But, of course, in the 19th century, the great scientific breakthrough is Darwinian evolution, and Darwin was not an anti-Semite, had nothing bad to say about the Jews, but yet the social Darwinists will argue that since we are the highest form of animal life, the same processes that work among animals operate among ourselves. If there are inferior species and superior species among animals, there must be inferior species and superior species among human beings. Although when it comes to human beings, we don't use the term species, we use the term race. There's nothing intrinsic or inherent in social Darwinism that is anti-Semitic. But some anti-Semites will make that intellectual marriage between anti-Semitism and social Darwinism, and we are no longer simply a religion, we are a race. And what it means, again, as succinctly as I can put it, what it means that, let us say, in the year 1885, or let us say, in the year 185, or up to the year 1885, a group of Christians may say, you see that Jewish kid crossing the street? Let's beat the living daylights out of him because his ancestors killed Jesus. And he repudiates the true religion. But what the development of racial anti-Semitism, that's going to lead to something else. And that is, see that Jewish kid crossing the street? Let's kill him. Not because his evil is not in his Torah. His evil is not in his Talmud. His evil is not in his religion. The evil is in his, is in his blood. Or as we would say, it's in his genes. And you don't have to be a wizard of logic to come to the conclusion. If the evil of the Jews is in his blood, it's in his genes, the Jew can kiss the cross a thousand times. It will not make him an acceptable or a decent person. The logical conclusion of that is elimination of anti-Semitism. The Jews must be eliminated from society in one way or another. These ideas, together with a last one, now here we get into controversial material, very, very sticky material. One Jewish historian refers to the phenomenon as the, the fata morgana, the fatal temptation of Jews all over Europe and probably all over the world. He's exaggerating, but he's got a point. It's the linkage of the Jews with the left. Now, don't misconstrue what I am saying. The overwhelming majority of Jews are overwhelmed. The overwhelming majority of Jews are either non-communist or anti-communist. But a disproportionate number of the communists are Jews. Poland, before World War II, had a population of 30 million people. In all of Poland, in all of those 30 million, there were only 50,000 communists. I must tell you, out of the 30 million Poles, somewhere between three and three and a half million were Jews. Out of all of the 30 million Poles, there were 50,000 communists, but 20,000 were Jews. 
some of the leaders of the Polish Communist Party were people of Jewish extraction. Note my term, Jewish extraction. That is, these are people who had divorced themselves from the Jewish community. When asked what you are, they would never say they were Jewish. They would say they were Marxist, Leninist, proletarian internationals, or something like that. Lithuania, 200,000 Jews out of about 2 million Lithuanians. Probably 5,000 Lithuanian communists. Again, 2,500 of Jewish extraction. In other words, once again, so no one will miss this, that is the overwhelming majority of Jews in every country were either non-communist or anti-communist. But a disproportionate number of the small number of communists were men and women of Jewish extraction. And some of the leaders of the left would again be were men and women of Jewish extraction. That will redound to the disadvantage of the Jewish community. The chief rabbi of Moscow put it very well in 1912. It's a famous remark. Translated into English, it runs something like this. The Trotskys play the tune, but the Bronsteins pay the piper. Trotsky's real name was Bronstein. When he's asked in the early 20s, what are you, comrade Trotsky? He replies, I'm a proletarian internationalist. Who did he think he was kidding? In the eyes of those who feared communism, and there were many who feared communism, he was a jit, he was a kike. That's what he was. And you must understand, again, even in our own country, I must tell you, parenthetically, you cannot understand the last century unless you understand the appeal of communism and the fear of communism. And as Americans, we understand this. That is, the House of Un-American Activities Committee, the first Senator McCarthy, right? The Hollywood blacklist. We all grew up with that stuff. And keep in mind, we are 4,500 miles from the Soviet border. How do you think people feel living in a country that had a contiguous border with the Soviet Union or were less than 500 miles away. The fear of communism, the appeal of communism, plays a major role in the unfolding of politics and the unfolding of anti-Semitism. Put another way, what I've tried to tell you is that hostility towards the Jews, anti-Semitism is a term from the late 19th century. It denotes that there's a new type of hatred of Jews. That is, it's based on race. Up until that time, historians used the phrase Judeophobia, fear and hatred of Jews, anti-Jewish sentiment. But whether it's anti-Jewish sentiment or anti-Semitism, for almost 2,000 years, Western civilization has been permeated with this hostility towards the Jews. You cannot spit in the face of history. You simply cannot do it. You can't overturn 1900 years of history by all the enlightenment, by all the things you are talking about. So what does it mean? It means that Western civilization and we Americans are part of Western civilization, even though large numbers of our people do not come from Western civilization. The prevailing civilization in this country is Western civilization, and that will have at least a residue of anti-Semitism. In addition to that, in many parts of the world, there was first Nazi anti-Semitism and then communist anti-Semitism. The communist anti-Semitism was more nuanced. It was anti-Zionism, anti-Israeli sentiment. But that was a nuance that was a very thin line. For those people who bought into it, the enemy was the Jews. Not only the Zionists, not only the Israelis, but the enemy was the Jews. Which brings us right to the present, right? Is there more anti-Semitism today than there was in the past. 
the FBI statistics and the ADL statistics are very, very telling. There is more anti-Semitism today than there was, I would say, say 10 or 15 years ago. I don't think anybody can deny this. Or let me put it to be more precise. There are more anti-Semitic incidents today than there were 10 to 15 years ago. Are there more anti-Semites today than there were 10 or 15 years ago? You're hard-pressed to argue that. So, who are these people? Well, we don't know who these people are. I have been accused of many, many things. No one has ever said to me that I am politically correct. I am not politically correct, so I will say a number of things to you. In Europe, in the eastern part of Europe, anti-Semitism is there. This is the phenomenon of anti-Semitism without Jews, because there are very few Jews left in Eastern Europe. The only place that has a large number of Jews in East Central Europe is Hungary. Excuse me, Hungary has about 120,000 Jews. Before the Second World War, Hungary had a population of 800,000 Jews. Hungary is probably the most anti-Semitic country in Europe at this period of time. Hungary is a country in which there is a party that comes close to crossing the line of anti-Semitism. Uh, Prime Minister Orban is not a particularly nice man. Most significant of all, Hungary has a party called the Jobbik Party, which is a bona fide anti-Semitic <coughs> party. And that party gets about 17 to 20% of the vote, enough to allow it to, on occasion to be a part of Orban's coalition. So there is a problem there. There's a problem all over. And the linkage always is, I must tell you. There I am giving a lecture to a group of people in the, war, the former Warsaw Ghetto. And I'm standing before, if you've been there, to the Rappaport Memorial. That's, there's a copy of the Rappaport Memorial at Yad Vashem. It's, it celebrates the Warsaw Ghetto Revolt. And I'm talking to my people, and uh, I see an elderly Pole there. He's listening to everything that I say. His English is good enough. He can hear what I'm saying and understand what, what I'm saying. And when, the, when I'm finished, he walks over to me and says, you know, you really gave a good lecture. He said, you know, the Jews suffered terribly. I saw what they, they, they suffered. But you didn't tell these people everything. That's the truth. And I knew what was coming. And I said, and I said, Mr. What is, what, what is the truth? Why didn't you tell them that your people brought communism to Poland? That's the linkage all over Eastern Europe. The mitigating factor, and I'm not saying this sarcastically or cynically or condescendingly, the mitigating factor is there is a group of people in East Central Europe that are more hated than the Jews. These are the gypsies. The antagonism toward the gypsies is absolutely unbelievable. I have had, I have spoken with very, very decent people, very, very well-educated people, people who are friends of the Jews, and there is a good deal of philo-Semitism in East Central Europe. And you know what they say to me? The gypsies apparently play, there's a particular instrument, it's like a, a, a banjo, a guitar. And this man, a number of people have said to me, where you hear the sounds of that instrument, that's where civilization ends. <coughs> Gypsies are immolated. Literally, they are burnt alive in some parts of East Central Europe. So in a sense, it's a cover. It's a cover uh, protecting the Jews. In Western Europe, it is a different issue. 
In Western Europe, it's the same old stuff. It is, uh, let us say, for some, it's the religious beliefs of the Jews, the idea that Jews killed Jesus. It is a belief uh, on the part of some people that the Jews are linked with communism. And on the left, it is a belief that all Jews are Zionists, all Zionists are supporters of Israel, and Israel is an occupying and fascist state. And that is going to lead to an eruption of anti-Semitism from the left. It also should be said that most of the anti-Semitic incidents in Paris, Marseille, Lyon, are not carried out by the old left, the new left, or the old right. They are carried out by Muslim immigrants. Over 80% of the anti-Semitic incidents in France and elsewhere in Western Europe are carried out by Muslim immigrants. Now, I will also tell you that to show you how strange history can be, if this were 1945, and we were sitting around a place like this, and I said to you that I had a dream, and the dream is that Jews, a rabbi would be killed in a yeshiva, some of his children would be killed, Jews would be killed at a Jewish museum, and you know what you would say to me in 1945, when the war was over? Those damn Poles, those damn Lithuanians, those damn Latvians, those damn Ukrainians, they haven't learned anything from the war. But those things do not happen in those places. They happen in Paris, Marseille, Lyon, and Brussels. And those things are a consequence of what I've been telling you. Old left, new left. Old right, but primarily Muslim immigrants. In our country, is there a rise of anti-Semitism? Well, there's a rise in the number of incidents. That is for sure. And that is usually carried out by the old right. These are the people, the old, the old neo-Nazis, that's almost an oxymoron, the old neo-Nazis, the Ku Klux Klan people, neo-fascists, and so on. This is where it really comes from. But let's get right to the jugular. Is President Trump responsible for this? Right? This is what we are all asking in one way or another. One thing is clear. Now, I must tell you, again, I always felt that people on television uh, who give us the news supposedly, objectively, and impartially, they should preface it by who they like and who they don't like and who they voted for. Then let them tell us what they have to say. I am among those people who held his nose and voted for Hillary Clinton. So, and I spoke vociferously against Donald Trump when I spoke before the students at Union College. Nonetheless, I will tell you, this talk that President Trump is an anti-Semite is, to use the old language, Narishkeit. An anti-Semite does not allow his daughter to marry a Jew. It is as simple as that. An anti-Semite does not appoint to people in the cabinet people who are Jewish. The question is, are there things that he has said? Things Are there sins of commission and are there sins of omission on the part of President Trump? Well, I think there are some sins of commission. Once again, he's not an anti-Semite. In a sense, some of the sins of commission are inadvertent sins. He has attacked Muslims. Make America great again. American first. That's, that's, let us say, a, a, a key, it's a clue, it's, 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 a, it's a signal 
to some of the most reactionary and hostile elements in American society. If this man running for the president, in fact, is attacking Muslims, then maybe it is all right for us to come out of the woodwork and make a blatant <coughs> attack upon Jews. We've hated Jews, say they, they would say to themselves, for a long period of time. After the Holocaust, it's not really the thing to do to attack Jews, but now there's a man running for the presidency who has attacked Muslims, has not attacked Jews. He has attacked Muslims, and maybe this is our signal that we can, or it is a, it's a hint to us that we can, in fact, attack the Jews. So I think that has taken place. There are sins of commission, and I think they are inadvertent sins of commission. That is, he really, I think, has suspicion of Muslims. I don't think, again, he really is an anti-Semite. Even those who know him for a long period of time have never accused him of being anti-Semitic. They say he doesn't pay his bills. That's another issue. But in fact, the fact there is no anti-Semitism in the man. Has there been sins of omission? And the answer is probably yes, in the sense that the Jewish community has always wanted a blatant and a very unequivocal condemnation of anti-Semitism. Up until yesterday, there was not such a statement. I don't know how many of you saw his speech yesterday. It was a very, very fine speech. Remember, that's Yom HaShoah yesterday. He spoke out on behalf of that is in commemoration of Yom HaShoah, in which he condemned anti-Semitism, in which he said, unlike the other statement that he made some weeks ago, this time he spoke about six million dead Jews. No ambiguity here, no talk about the victims of the Holocaust. He spoke about six million dead Jews. He said we must condemn anti-Semitism, and he told the Israelis, we will make sure that the Holocaust does not take place again, and we will defend the state of Israel. Better late than never, but in fact that statement has been made. It is important for us as we move into the future that we tolerate no anti-Semitic statements whatsoever. And America, our compatriots, are very, very good on this. You can't get far in the United States by playing the anti-Semitic card. In Poland, when there is an election, a free and democratic election, heaven help the candidate for the prime minister's position or the presidential position that has a Jewish skeleton in his or her closet. You've got a Jewish grandmother, and you are a Polish Catholic, but if you had a Jewish grandmother and you're running for office, you are in trouble, given the pervasive nature of anti-Semitism, not only in Poland and Hungary, but all over Eastern Europe. It is not an issue here. You can have Jewish skeletons up the kazoo in the United States. After all, we have a local bishop that had a Jewish grandfather. Didn't prevent him from being a, being a bishop. I believe the cardinal in New York City is also a man that has Jewish relatives and Jewish ancestry. It's not an issue here, but it is an issue in Europe. And so the point in all of this is, again, if you want to make the point, to show you that it doesn't go far in the United States, is, of course, look at the, the most prominent people on the right in our country in the post-World War II period. The people who received, two men 
who received large amounts of support from the American people. Fortunately, not majority support, but a large amount of support. One is the first Senator McCarthy. McCarthy, in fact, is an embarrassment for us. McCarthy not only never uttered an anti-Semitic word, but his chief legal counsel was Roy Cohn. And his chief investigator was the man from Gloversville, G. David Shine. That's an embarrassment. But I can tell you, not once in anything that he said did he ever utter an anti-Semitic statement. And the other was George Wallace, the old George Wallace, who was born before he was born again. The old George Wallace, for all of his hostility to African Americans, for all of his, his support of segregation, never, never, never uttered an anti-Semitic remark. Did these men harbor anti-Semitic ideas? I can't tell you. But they were smart enough to know that anti-Semitism will gain you no currency in American society. But after Auschwitz, we would be damn fools if we ignored a rise in anti-Semitism. We must combat it, and we must make it clear that it is, as it always has been, it is something that it will hurt you if you are an anti-Semite, it will hurt you professionally, it will hurt you politically. We must adhere to that line again and again. I will also tell you that there is a slippery slope. Here we get into very, very controversial material, and that is what should be our attitude towards Muslims and Muslim immigrants. I'm not going, you're going to have someone who speaks about that the next week. I will simply tell you here, it's a very slippery slope. That is, if there are religious attacks, if we attack Islam, if we attack Muslims in this country, as the night follows the day, that slippery slope will eventually lead some people to mount an attack upon Jews. We've got to be very, very careful with this. But I must tell you, at the risk, again, of offending some of you, last point for me, the risk of offending some of you, the fact of the matter is I don't worry about anti-Semitism here. I am concerned about it. I told you we must be on guard. The Europeans will deal with this. This is not the 1930s. There isn't a political leader in France, in Germany, in Belgium, the Netherlands, and the UK that has not condemned anti-Semitism. The problem in the 30s was both the governments and the opposition competed with each other in being more anti-Semitic. That is not the case today. But I must tell you, the anti-Semitism that I worry about is the anti-Semitism in the Islamic world. That is, for those of, who, of us who are honest with ourselves and want to hope, hope the day will come when there will be peace between Arabs and Jews, must factor in the enormous amount of anti-Semitism within the Islamic world. We are accused of a multitude of sins, of bringing prostitution, bringing syphilis, bringing AIDS, bringing doing all sorts of things. And the attacks that are coming, to be sure, focus on Israel and Zionism, but they also mention the Jews. There is a problem in the Quran. There's a problem in the Hadith. How do we deal with this? This is the real threat. We have long-standing democratic traditions. Our compatriots are good and decent people. They will not endorse anti-Semitism. We must be on guard. We must confront it. It is in the Middle East. That is where I worry about. But what does our tradition tell us? 
never end on a negative note, right? <laughs> right? Rabbi Lichtenfeld is here, he knows that. Every prophetic statement, every statement in the Haftorah that leads to Tisha B'Av, right, always ends with a positive last note. I know that, and so, let me tell you. If you, first of all, I must tell you this. I'm, I'm paraphrasing Plato. He didn't say anything about Jews, but it's an interesting statement. Only the dead have seen the last of war. Only dead Jews have seen the last of anti-Semitism. This is something that we will confront till the end of time. It is just a fact of life. The issue is not whether or not it exists. The issue is whether it exists in a magnitude large enough to threaten us and to stifle the, advan the, that's the advancement of society of our children and grandchildren. By the grace of God and by living in this wonderful country, there's only one time that that has probably taken place, and that's in the 1920s and 30s. That's a different time. That's a different lecture. But that's something else. What... For those of you who think there will never be peace, that we will confront that Islamic anti-Semitism till the end of time. There will never be peace between the Arabs and the Palestinians. The historian is not smarter than the political scientist or the sociologist or the anthropologist. What the historian brings is a sense of perspective. And so I tell you, for those of you that were there or took a good course in World War II, one of the great famous photographs from the early part of World War II is a middle-aged Frenchman, tears streaming down his face as he sees German soldiers march down, who stepped down the Champs-Élysées? It's a very famous picture. Who would have dreamt 35 years later that a combined German and French NATO unit would march arm in arm down the Champs-Élysées? Who would believe that now France and Germany, close allies, are the anchors of the European Union? In 1975, Time magazine published an article on on South Africa. And the editor or the, the writer asked the group of Afrikaners, what will you do if the blacks rise? And the answer he gave, we will, we will ride till our stirrups are filled with blood. We will never give in to the blacks. Fifteen years later, Nelson Mandela comes out and apartheid goes into the garbage can of history. I am a Russian Soviet historian by training. I can tell you, no one, no one in the field of Soviet studies anywhere in the world predicted what was going to happen. We all knew that Marxism-Lenin was bankrupt. If you went to Moscow in the 60s, the 70s, the early 80s, you saw 500 people line up for toilet paper. You knew that the system wasn't working. But we all, without a single exception, we all believe that by intimidation by the party, the KGB, the Red Army, the system would last well into the 21st century. March 1985, Gorbachev is in power. Now we hear Perestroika, restructuring, Novyamishlenia, new thinking in Soviet foreign policy, glasnost and openness, and in 1991, it's all over. The lesson of the historian is, while we might confront anti-Semitism, while Arab and Jewish, let us say, the enmity of the Arab world, the Islamic world towards the Jews, seems to be lasting until the end of time, the lesson the historian gives to you is that it is never appropriate, or put it in another way, one should never, never, never say never. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, Stephen, for a brilliant, concise, and educational lecture. And before we get into the uh, Q&A period, I want to uh, once more announce the next program in the special series which will be held on May 1st by Martha Solomon 
the Vice Chairman of External Affairs for Hyas, and the North Country Federation event, where Steve will speak again, will be on May the 21st in Saratoga at the City Center. And now for the Q&A, which will be brief, and also I ask you that ask a question and allow others to ask a question, but don't give another lecture. Thank you. For the Q&A. Yes. Um, you brought up the, uh, the slippery slope about the Muslims. Um, I, I've read a lot about supporting moderate Muslims. Um, and uh, does that in, put us in a more dangerous position if we, we stand with them uh, to, against the racial profiling or, you know, is that what you're saying about the slippery slope, or do we just think, uh, this? I understand what you said, with one minority picked on, then the next right. is, okay. But is there a, a pro or a con, or a... On what? Uh, so standing with the moderate Muslims. First of all, it should be said, I hope you heard her question uh, about moderate Muslims. That's not an oxymoron. They're all moderate Muslims. The problem that moderate Muslims confront was laid out very, very well by a man that didn't give, didn't even know probably that they, he knew they existed, but he wasn't concerned with them, and that's Mao Tse Tung. Mao Tse Tung's famous remark is, political power grows from the barrel of a gun. And the fact of the matter is, moderate Muslims don't have the guns. So therefore, while they are there and we should support them, uh, don't be overly optimistic as to what they can do. Uh, because they don't have the guns. There, there will be, I'm not saying it will come this year or next year, next decade, or even two decades from now. The only chance for reform within Islam, the great chance, is from within. There's very little that we can do. Uh, Freud used to say, uh, reality determines consciousness. Marx said the same thing, and that is when people confront a reality that they cannot change, they will change themselves. And the reality that moderate Muslims are speaking about is, look, I mean, again, when Europeans were literally, almost, swing, literally, almost literally swinging from the trees, Islamic civilization was at the pinnacle of, of Western civilization. <clears throat> Mathematics, medicine, philosophy, science, and all of it. These are the Muslims. But that's a long time ago. A long time ago. And what a number of Muslims asked from the end of the 19th century, what has happened to us? A UN subcommittee report in the early years of this century, and the people who were on the subcommittee were all Arabs. They lamented what was happening, what had happened to Islamic civilization in terms of the numbers of articles that are published uh, in scientific journals, in medical journals. Again, Islam, which had been at the pinnacle of civilization, is now a backwater. Why is that so? Is it Islam? Some of them will say it is Islam. <coughs> is it the lack of democracy? That, that too is a role. Incidentally, many of them said, in fact, the report had as its conclusion, we cannot be a modern civilization when we don't educate it over half of the people, and that is females. Women are not educated in many Muslim countries. So, the, I think that is beginning to dawn on a number of Muslims, and what does it mean? 
It means we are a backwater. It means we are played with by other powers. It means that radical or extremist elements in amongst ourselves are going to cause a great deal of havoc. The chance for reform, it will come. It may not come as quickly as we want it. It will come. It has to come from within Islam itself. Again, again, I'm not waffling here. My students accuse me of a multitude of sins. I, one of them is, it's never the waffling. On the one hand, you may think that what I said is contradictory. On the one hand, I'm telling you that be careful of joining an anti-Islamic crusade. Because as you quite rightly said, you hit one minority, you may hit another minority. And we are, to a certain extent, vulnerable. You should also know, on the positive side, a recent Pew poll did show that of all the religions in American society, Jews or Judaism is the most admired. There is a lot of respect for our people here in the United States. America is really very different. Where the contradiction that some of you may think is coming, there is a problem within Islam. We have a problem, or they have a problem with us. They really do. The hadith that is used all the time, the hadith are the sayings and the teachings of the Prophet Muhammad. There are thousands of them. Muslim scholars say it's impossible that Muhammad said all these things. So there must have been an accretion in there. But the one that you get all the time, it's a devastating comment. Muslims like ourselves believe in a judgment day. And the hadith says, on judgment day, the tree will say to the Muslim, Muslim, there's a Jew hiding behind me, kill him. On judgment day, the rock will say to the Muslim, Muslim, there's a Jew hiding behind me, kill him. That's tough stuff. The Quran has some nice things to say about the Jews. It also has some very hostile things to say about the Jews. What we need is a reinterpretation here. Now, as far as American society is concerned, I'll give you what I hope is what will happen with Muslims who come into our country. <clears throat> Every group that has come into the United States has acculturated to the United States an American civilization and has abandoned most of its worst characteristics or features or ideas. So I refer to an incident that involves my favorite American politician, Mayor Koch. I thought he was the cat's pajamas. And there's Mayor Koch leading a Ukrainian day parade down Fifth Avenue. And a reporter asks him, a young reporter, it must have been a Jewish reporter, only a Jewish reporter would ask this question. Mr. Mayor, how do you think, what do you think about your leading a Ukrainian day parade down Fifth Avenue? And Koch, bless his soul, says, America's a wonderful place. In the old country, there would be a pogrom. They would be chasing me down the streets. But in America, I lead a Ukrainian day parade. That has been, of course, it's an exaggeration, but that has been the way people have acculturated in our country. It is my hope and belief that, in fact, that will happen with Muslims in our country. Now, I must also tell you here, again, you will hear someone who's more closer to this area next week than I am. But I must tell you, there are about, we are now talking, some people say there are now over 7 million Jews in the United States. Uh, our numbers, we have tremendous political influence in both parties. Jewish money fuels, to a very large extent, both the Republican and the Democratic Party. More Muslim immigrants are a political power 
diminishes. I will also tell you that, like ourselves, every immigrant group brings with it intellectual and political baggage whence they come. I told you, my belief is, they will, Muslim immigrants, like everybody else, will integrate into American society. But a good part of that political baggage, hostility towards the state of Israel, that will not diminish. We will not see pogroms here. But it will, their influence will increase, our influence will diminish. But on the other hand, these are people who are under the gun. If, you've got a, if a Jew has a sensitive bone in his or her body, you cannot but grieve for those Syrian men, women, and children who are suffering terribly. It is a difficult situation to be in. I'm not the one to tell you what the proper Jewish response should be. I'm simply laying out to you some of these issues. But I am telling you, again, you see those children that are being gassed and by poison gas. You have to, if you've got a Jewish bone in your body, you have to feel very, very, very sympathetically towards them. That's correct. An Israeli-American right. Jew right. In, in Jerusalem. How do we as a community deal with that with all else? <coughs> all right. She made the statement that, that the threats against the Jewish community centers were done by probably someone who was not playing with a full deck. Yeah. So the, the question there is, be, first of all, the immediate response is, be very, very careful before you condemn any group or any individual for a terrorist act. But what we don't know, now those, these statistics may be there, I don't know, I have not seen them. That is, we are told, for example, we heard on the radio, 84% increase in anti-Semitic incidents. I just got a mailing from the ADL, 94% in the uh, increase in anti-Semitic incidents in the greater New York City area. Who's responsible for these incidents? How many of them are Muslims? How many of them are people on the right who are not Muslims? I don't know. I can't give you the answer to this. We submit a card. In Poland, when there is an election, a free and democratic election, heaven help the candidate for the prime minister's position or the presidential position that has a Jewish skeleton in his or her closet. You've got a Jewish grandmother, and you are a Polish Catholic, but if you had a Jewish grandmother and you're running for office, you are in trouble given the pervasive nature of anti-Semitism, not only in Poland and Hungary, but all over Eastern Europe. It is not an issue here. You can have Jewish skeletons up the kazoo in the United States. After all, we have a local bishop that had a Jewish grandfather. Didn't prevent him from being a, being a bishop. I believe the cardinal in New York City is also a man that has Jewish relatives and Jewish ancestry. It's not an issue here. But it is an issue in Europe. And so the point in all of this is, again, if you want to make the point, to show you that it doesn't go far in the United States, is, of course, look at the, the most prominent people on the right 
in our country in the post-World War II period. The people who received, two men who received large amounts of support from the American people. Fortunately, not majority support, but a large amount of support. One is the first Senator McCarthy. McCarthy, in fact, is an embarrassment for us. McCarthy not only never uttered an anti-Semitic word, but his chief legal counsel was Roy Cohn. And his chief investigator was the man from Gloversville, G. David Shine. That's an embarrassment. But I can tell you, not once in anything that he said did he ever utter an anti-Semitic statement. And the other was George Wallace, the old George Wallace, who was born before he was born again. The old George Wallace, for all of his hostility to African Americans, for all of his, his support of segregation, never, never, never uttered an anti-Semitic remark. Did these men harbor anti-Semitic ideas? I can't tell you. But they were smart enough to know that anti-Semitism will gain you no currency in American society. But after Auschwitz, we would be damn fools if we ignored a rise in anti-Semitism. We must combat it, and we must make it clear that it is, as it always has been, it is something that it will hurt you if you are an anti-Semite, it will hurt you professionally, it will hurt you politically, we must adhere to that line again and again. I will also tell you that there is a slippery slope. Here we get into very, very controversial material. And that is, what should be our attitude towards Muslims and Muslim immigrants? I'm not going, you're going to have someone who speaks about that the next week. I will simply tell you here, it's a very slippery slope. That is... If there are religious attacks, if we attack Islam, if we attack Muslims in this country, as the night follows the day, that slippery slope will eventually lead some people to mount an attack upon Jews. We've got to be very, very careful with this. But I must tell you, at the risk again of offending some of you, last point for me, the risk of offending some of you, the fact of the matter is I don't worry about anti-Semitism here. I am concerned about it. I told you we must be on guard. The Europeans will deal with this. This is not the 1930s. There isn't a political leader in France, in Germany, in Belgium, the Netherlands, and the UK that has not condemned anti-Semitism. The problem in the 30s was both the governments and the opposition competed with each other in being more anti-Semitic. That is not the case today. But I must tell you, the anti-Semitism that I worry about is the anti-Semitism in the Islamic world. That is, for those of, who, of us who are honest with ourselves and want to hope, hope the day will come when there will be peace between Arabs and Jews, must factor in the enormous amount of anti-Semitism within the Islamic world. We are accused of a multitude of sins, of bringing prostitution, bringing syphilis, bringing AIDS, bringing doing all sorts of things. And the attacks that are coming, to be sure, focus on Israel and Zionism, but they also mention the Jews. There is a problem in the Quran. There's a problem in the Hadith. How do we deal with this? This is the real threat. We have long-standing democratic traditions. Our compatriots are good and decent people. They will not endorse anti-Semitism. We must be on guard. We must confront it. It is in the Middle East. 
that is where I worry about. But, what does our tradition tell us? Never end on a negative note, right? <laughs> right? Rabbi Lichtenfeld is here, he knows that. Every prophetic statement, every statement in the Haftorah that leads to Tisha B'Av, right, always ends with a positive last note. I know that, and so, let me tell you. If you, first of all, I must tell you this. I'm, I'm paraphrasing Plato. He didn't say anything about Jews, but it's an interesting statement. Only the dead have seen the last of war. Only dead Jews have seen the last of anti-Semitism. This is something that we will confront till the end of time. It is just a fact of life. The issue is not whether or not it exists. The issue is whether it exists in a magnitude large enough to threaten us and to stifle the, that's the advancement of society of our children and grandchildren. By the grace of God and by living in this wonderful country, there's only one time that that has probably taken place, and that's in the 1920s and 30s. That's a different time. That's a different lecture. But that's something else. What... For those of you who think there will never be peace, that we will confront that Islamic anti-Semitism till the end of time. There will never be peace between the Arabs and the Palestinians. The historian is not smarter than the political scientist or the sociologist or the anthropologist. What the historian brings is a sense of perspective. And so I tell you, for those of you that were there or took a good course in World War II, one of the great famous photographs from the early part of World War II is a middle-aged Frenchman, tears streaming down his face as he sees German soldiers march down, who stepped down the Champs-Élysées? It's a very famous picture. Who would have dreamt 35 years later that a combined German and French NATO unit would march arm in arm down the Champs-Élysées? Who would believe that now France and Germany, close allies, are the anchors of the European Union? In 1975, Time magazine published an article on on South Africa. And the editor or the, the writer asked a group of Afrikaners, what will you do if the blacks rise? And the answer he gave, we will, we will ride till our stirrups are filled with blood. We will never give in to the blacks. Fifteen years later, Nelson Mandela comes out and apartheid goes into the garbage can of history. I am a Russian and Soviet historian by training. I can tell you, no one, no one in the field of Soviet studies anywhere in the world predicted what was going to happen. We all knew that Marxism-Lenin was bankrupt. If you went to Moscow in the 60s, the 70s, the early 80s, you saw 500 people line up for toilet paper. You knew that the system wasn't working. But we all, without a single exception, we all believed that by intimidation by the party, the KGB, the Red Army, the system would last well into the 21st century. March 1985, Gorbachev is in power. Now we hear Perestroika, Novia Structuring, Novia Michelinia, New Thinking in Soviet Foreign Policy, Glasnost, and Openness, and in 1991, it's all over. The lesson of the historian is, while we might confront anti-Semitism, while Arab and Jewish, let us say, the enmity of the Arab world, the Islamic world towards the Jews, seems to be lasting until the end of time, the lesson the historian gives to you is that it is never appropriate, or put it in another way, one should never, never, never say never. Thank you very much.